How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 189 of X-Labs, and it is, uh, it is Kota Day, C-O-T-A, Children of the Atom Day. And uh, if you listen to the, my discussion of the first issue, you know that, uh, well, I wasn't quite sure how to receive it. Um, and after reading the second issue, I don't know that my opinions changed all that much. Uh, how about we just hop on into it? Uh, this is Children of the Atom number two. At a June 2021 cover date, the story is called Prison Break, written by Vida Ayala, Art Bernard Chang, colors Marcelo Maiolo, letters VCs Travis Lanham, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits Andrews Ballesteros, Robinson White Sabolski, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale April 14th of 2021. And, you know, I don't often talk about covers, and I'm not really going to talk about this cover all that much either, but... Um, I swear, all of these Children of the Atom covers, they could, I mean, we could put them in a deck and shuffle them and put them on just about any cover. It's its all the same stuff. But anyway, let's get inside here. We open with one of the Hell's Bells making a phone call from prison. So, um, I guess we're still dealing with the Hell's Bells then. All right. Well, she's calling into another Hell's Bell to come break them out of the clink here, and uh, we'll talk about who that is in just a little bit. Meanwhile, however, we're at the Krakoan Embassy in New York City, where it looks like Mystique has been left in charge of the place, which doesn't seem like the uh, smartest thing to do, but I guess she is part of the Quiet Council, so stands to reason. Anyway, she is visited upon by the Avengers. Hmm. And you know, it's been a real long time since any, you know, I've seen any Avengers inject themselves into an X story, and even having said that, it's still kind of annoying to see them here. Now, here's the thing. We got Captain America, Iron Man, and a super scowly Captain Marvel here. They walk into the place and immediately demand to talk to Professor X, which, I mean, come on. They're here to discuss the Kota kids and how they're breaking Kamala's law. All right. Okay, so, hmm. Okay, the X-Men have been in their Krakoan era for, what, two years now, right? I mean, we've talked about almost 200 single issues of a comic book that have been in this era, so it's been it's been a little while. And it's because of the friggin' Coda kids that the Avengers are finally getting in the X-Men's faces? I mean, this is the big crisis? A bunch of dopey kids in X-Men cosplay having one public battle? You know, not too long ago, when we covered the most recent issue of Excalibur... I kind of, I said that it kind of, it's kind of up its own butt, right? And it's disconnected from the rest of the line. You know, all the X-Books have a story. 
while Excalibur only worries about Excalibur. Okay, the, the Excalibur threats trump everything else that's going on, and anybody who dares guest star in that book has to abide by that. The situation there was uh, Otherworld and Saturnine being the most dire threat in the world to the mutants here, totally neglecting every other threat that they've faced since the Krakoan era started, including like the entire country of Russia wanting to, co- wanting to come after them. Uh, somehow, Saturnine is... Uh, the worst threat ever. I, I don't know. So here, Children of the Atom kind of feels the same way, you know? The Children of the Atom are the top priority in the Marvel Universe. It's what's bringing Captain America to the Krakoan embassy. I tell you, the Kota kids do not require this much attention at this point. They've had one public battle. Whatever the case, Storm shows up to put the Avengers in their place. It's worth noting that Storm is wearing her animated series costume here. Which is bizarre Um, Anyway, she and Captain America argue for a bit About the so-called young X-Men And if I'm being honest The whole thing feels pretty forced And as mentioned, blown out of proportion But hey, you know, at least we can say That the Avengers appear in the solicit Maybe that'll get another, another two buys on this book Now, after Storm's like, hey, beat it You know, the Avengers leave Then Storm talks to Mystique for a little bit She asks her for a favor Though, we don't get to find out exactly what that favor is just yet And uh, we won't find out at any point in this issue But uh, probably just something to put in the back of our minds for a bit From here, we go to our double-page spread of roll call and cred And our characters are Cherub, Marvel Guy, Cyclops Lass, Gimmick, and Daycrawler Then we go to an info page, and it's Gabriel's, or or Cherub's, uh, you must be a mutant to have abs like that workout plan. It's a, it's a website, I'm assuming, because there are thumbs up on it. And indeed, this issue will be narrated completely by Gabe. Uh, the first issue was uh, was all uh, Buddy, Cyclops Lass, and here looks like it's going to be Cherub giving us, the, uh, giving us the exposition. So we get into comics again, and we're at Gabe's place. And he narrates about stereotypes and appearances being deceiving. He suggests that when people look at him, all they see is a black boy from a broken home who plays basketball, but he'll have you know that he's much more than that. And the only people who have actually seen him as more than that are his Kota kin. And uh, if I'm being honest, they really overstate this here. Uh, After the first round of praise Gabe's narration heaps upon himself, we kind of get the point. But we still get, like, another page and a half of it. Anyway... He's here with his mother and his little sister, and they're talking about mutants. Gabe's mom suggests that there have been a lot of problems with mutants of late, uh, which, I mean, has there been? Outside of the one battle that the Coda kids had with, uh, I mean, I don't know that the world at large knows or cares about the Festival of Swords, do they? I don't know. Now, Gabe says he thinks the mutants are cool, and he knows for a fact that uh, his mom once did as well. You see, she used to be a really big Lila Cheney fan back in high school. Which begs the question, just how old is Lila Cheney supposed to be right now? Hmm. Gabe's mom jokingly, well, I think it's jokingly, the art is not completely clear here. She's either joking or she's furious. She tells her son that only God can judge her high school hairdo and music tastes. Huh. He kisses his family goodbye and heads off to the Dazzler concert. So hey, we're naming both the mutant songstresses in, uh, in one scene here. And so, let's shift scenes to the Dazzler concert. And you know what? 
I know it's been a crazy year in the real world, but how weird is it to see a group of people crammed into an enclosed space without masks? I mean, of course they couldn't, and, and really shouldn't, run a COVID story at Marvel, you know, since the Krakoan magic meds would have made short work of it, but still, a scene like this is uh, pretty refreshingly weird. Uh, now, Gimmick thanks Gabe for spotting her the cash for her ticket, and tells him that she'll pay him back after her next donation stream. And I call her Gimmick because I can't remember her real name, and, uh, I mean, come on, neither can you. Now, she's doing a donation stream because this is a thing that young people do, you see. They stream online in hopes that people will give them money. And I really wonder how she gets people to do this. I mean, we gotta assume that all the money she gets is going toward creating Kota costumes and whatnot. And I suppose some of that whatnot is uh, paying for tickets to Dazzler concerts. I don't know. Kids these days, am I right? Anyway, at the merch table, Gabe and the gang run into Cole, who was that kid from last issue who totally isn't actually a mutant, right? We basically get a repeat of everything we learned about him last issue. He was sick, near death, then he came back better than ever. The only new thing we learn about him is that he's a Dazzler fan. Now, this is due to Gabe showing him some Dazzler music videos while he was in the hospital. They part company with Cole telling the gang that he'll save them a spot inside. But then, Daycrawler, who must not be a Dazzler fan as he's not there with the, the rest of the crew here, and he's all also now going, or he's trying to go by the codename Nighty Nightcrawler, which might just be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Anyway, he sends a text message about some mutant mayhem going down with the Hell's Bells breaking out of jail. And so our Kota kids decide to ditch the concert and go play Hero. Info page. It's a one-night-only Dazzler concert poster at Webster Hall. Uh, Dazzler is in her original disco look in the poster, which uh, kind of reminds me of like when washed-up bands you still use pictures from when they were young to advertise their shows. Uh, a lot of uh, washed-up wrestlers will do the same thing. Uh, there's also a post-it note on this page from Benny thanking Gabe for the ticket and promising to pay him back. So, if we haven't made this clear yet, Gabe is a literal saint. Um, he doesn't just dress like Angel, he's literally an angel. So, lickety-split, our heroes bamf over to the prison. Gimmick is a bit off-balance and claims that she'll, quote, never get used to that teleporter. Which might suggest to us that Daycrawler slash Nighty Nightcrawler's bamfing might not be a mutant power, huh? Now they run into the Hell's Bells, and Cyclops Lass is super psyched to let Briquette know that she wrote an article about her on Mutants Unmuted. And uh, that's basically what I'm going to say if I ever run across the Morlock Bliss in real life, so I can't really hold that against her. Now Briquette, it's worth noting, is the only still-powered member of the Bells, so this will be the first time that the Coda kids are pitted against a whole mutant. And well, hmm. They don't, they don't fare all that well, do they? No, no, they sure don't. During the fight, the concept of Krakoan amnesty comes up. The Kota kids ask why the Bells haven't just gone to Krakoa, to which one of the depowered Bells says that uh, they wouldn't go there in an incomplete state. Huh. Do I sense a crucible battle royal brewing? I sort of hope so. Briquette commends the kids on studying the Bells and knowing their routine, but... You know, like Mike Tyson once said, uh, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face, which is pretty much what happens to the Coda team at this point. Evening Crawler then bamfs the kids away so they can collect themselves, but unfortunately and stupidly, he only ports them over like one room. Briquette bashes through the wall and continues to pummel the hell out of them. 
But then, Storm shows up, along with some X-Men wallpaper, including Toad, Outlaw from Agent X, and Mercury. Storm is here to both tell the Bells to back off and to offer them Krakoan amnesty. Briquette isn't sure that this is legit, but decides to go along anyway. Storm then chats up the Coda kids, who all kind of squee when they, you know, notice that they're actually talking to a, such a high-profile ex-character. Storm offers them Krakoa as well, but again, they turn it down. She also mentions that Cerebro cannot scan them and suggests that maybe they're somehow blocking it from doing so. Not just, you know, Occam's razoring the thing and guessing that maybe these kids aren't actually mutants. I don't know. Hopefully she's just playing along. Storm then gives Cyclops Lass one of her X buttons, which I suppose is a communication device of sorts. As she, the wallpaper, and the bells leave via a temporary Krakoan gateway, she instills in the Kotas that uh, they're always willing to help them. And so, that brings us to the wrap-up where, wait a minute, haven't we already read this page? It's the Kota kids at Coney Island attempting to use the Krakoan gateway under the docks. Is this just something the kids do every night? Hoping that one of these days they'll actually be mutants? I don't know. That's a question we'll have to answer another time because that is where we end it. Next episode, Wolverine finally remembers that there's a, a vampire nation brewing. We haven't, uh, he hasn't attended to that since before X of Tens, if you can believe it. So, uh, I guess, uh, I guess his memory just isn't what uh, it used to be. Or maybe it's what it's always been, and it's uh, been a little Swiss cheesy. But we're going to get back to Vampire Nation for better or for worse next episode. But for now, well, let's talk about this issue. Um, hmm. <laughs> not my favorite. Uh, certainly not my favorite here. Uh, I feel like we're two issues in and we're already into repeats. This is basically, I mean, it's almost like a point-by-point Retelling of the first issue I, I really don't know What more to say about it Other than the fact that we had a different narrator this time And I mean the narration here Kind of insisted upon itself As, as uh, pretentious as that might sound It was uh, very unsubtle um, Not terribly interesting And doesn't really make us feel like we I mean because what we're getting here Is very cliche stuff Um, What we learn about Gabe is that he is an overachiever who's viewed by people who don't know him and who don't take the time to get to know him. He's viewed in a certain way because of his upbringing, and uh, I mean, that really sucks, right? But uh, the lengths we went to um, dispel uh, the stereotype here made it feel like we were protesting a little bit too much. Uh, you could tell me that he's got good grades, that he that he takes care of his family. That's all I really need to know. I don't need to know everything, you know. And if you are going to tell me more than that, make it make it interesting uh, instead of uh, exactly what we expect it to be from that point on. So I don't feel like we know Gabe any more than than we did last issue. I mean, all we do know is that his mother was a uh, was a Lila Cheney fan, and that Lila Cheney must be in like her mid to late fifties at this point. Yeah, despite. Not really looking like it, and also despite having dated Cannonball while he was like 16 or 17, which is kind of kind of icky, isn't it? Now, the main difference between the fight with the Hell's Bells this issue and the fight with the Hell's Bells last issue is that this time they came packing some actual steel-powered mutant heat, and uh, the Coda kids could not keep up with Briquette, um, which 
I mean, that does show us something, right? That shows us that they might be capable of taking down depowered mutants, or I guess regular old humans. But when it comes to an actual super-powered, meta-powered character, they're uh, they're at they're at a severe disadvantage. Uh, not only, I mean, I don't know how how certain we are that these kids don't have any powers. I'm pretty sure that they don't, which uh, puts them at a disadvantage in that way. And they're also just not experienced in superheroics and fighting and battling. So I mean, they've got they've already got two strikes against them if they're ever pitted against a uh, real threat. But even so, um, it's not like they caused a whole lot more collateral damage than, say, the Avengers or the X-Men, if there were X-Men right now. Any other superhero team. They didn't really cause any any more damage than any other team. There were no casualties. So that brings us to the beginning of the issue where Captain America and company are there kind of uh, read and storm the riot act about getting these kids under control. It feels like... I don't know, in fairness, in fairness, Captain America says that he doesn't believe in Kamala's law and is not really happy about having to enforce it, which, I mean, I can get into that being a huge problem that I have with Marvel Comics now as it is, that the Avengers actually have to answer to people rather than just being superheroes. It's all about uh, answering to, is Maria Hill still a thing? Is she still around? I haven't haven't seen her in a while, but that doesn't mean anything, but... Post-Civil War, it feels like every time the Avengers want to as much as have a bowel movement, they need to check with someone in S.H.I.E.L.D. to get clearance. So that's something I really can't stand about the uh, about the comics now, but it is what it is. So in fairness to the Avengers, Captain America says, you know, I don't believe in Kamala's law. It's just that we're stuck having to enforce it. I don't want to enforce it, but it's kind of out of their hands at this point. Um... I do have a question about Krakoan amnesty, or immunity, or whatever they're calling it here. Um, could Storm, or any representative of Krakoa, in theory, could they... I mean, under the assumption here that these uh, Children of the Atom characters are at least perceived to be mutants, since they are dressing the part, um, could a Storm, could a Mystique, could anybody just be like, oh yeah, we're calling amnesty every time they get, they get you know arrested for Kamala's Law? Or, as, uh, as perceived mutants who aren't living on Krakoa, do, does Krakoan amnesty extend to them? So, like, can they work out in the open? And if uh, the police come, they just shine their badge that, hey, we're, we're, with, the, we're with the X-Men, you know, and uh, they can't be arrested because they're, they don't answer to human law. I, I really don't know. And unfortunately, at this point, I'm not all that invested in finding out, you know. Uh, this felt way, way too similar. To, uh, to the first issue, which, I mean, th- this is $9 worth of comics here, you know, these two issues, and I suppose it really won't matter when the trades come out, you know, they're not worried about us week-to-week, month-to-month people anymore, are they? So I guess we'll just uh, learn to like the taste of whatever this is and uh, let the trade waiters uh, reap the rewards of uh, not supporting these books when they came out, so... Don't know that I have much more to say about this issue. Um, I'm overall, I'm, I'm fairly disappointed in it, and it's unfortunate. If you agree or disagree, I would, uh, I would love to hear from you. So please uh, consider reaching out if that is the case. But uh, let's hop into the mailbag here before we uh, we cut out. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about X Men number seventeen. He says, "I did not enjoy this comic." Now, this is the issue where we had. Uh, We had Gene and Scott in their X-Factor outfits, and Storm was there, and uh, Deathbird had called them in because there was a traitor, and 
Yeah, it was that issue. And Damien continues, I'm beginning to dread whatever it is they have planned for Storm. There have been constant hints that she'll be leaving Krakoa, and now we have the head of the Shi'ar offering her a boon. Hickman's going to send her into space, isn't he? He really can't help himself. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, I hate to say it, but it would not surprise me if after the Hellfire Gala, um, we do send Storm into space here. I don't know what's happening with Planet Size X-Men. Um, the solicit gives us the impression that it's going to have something to do with space, right? Um, I, I'm not looking forward to more space stuff. You guys know me. I'm not a fan of that, uh, that tact of, uh, X-Men storytelling, but... I could definitely see them uh, sending Storm, sending Storm out. Frankly, if uh, she is leaving Krakoa, there's only a handful of places that she can go, right? It's either she might go to Wakanda to, uh, you know, follow up on damaging that sword from Exitens. She might go to Madripoor because that's where everybody goes. Uh, she might go to Otherworld um, because why not? She may go to space or, I mean... There's one place that we haven't really talked about since X of Tens ended, really, right? Uh, Arako. I wonder if she'll head to Arako to try to smooth things over. Or maybe she'll go to Arako, and then Arako will wind up being jettisoned into space, and, and we'll all be right. It, I mean, at this point, I mean, uh, not much would surprise me. Damien continues, so let's just pretend this story never happened. Fans can collectively overrule continuity whenever we want just by ignoring it. If I can do it for the Dibneys at DC, I can do it to protect my favorite X-Man. <laughs> oh, the poor Dibneys, huh? Oh, man. I think that was one of the very first times I got uh, really ticked off at, like, the apparent carte blanche that a comic company would give to one creator, especially one that was just slumming it in comics in uh, Brad Meltzer. It really shows the inferiority complex that comics has, where if you... Uh, you know, if you will slum it in comics, you, you could basically do whatever the hell you want, you know? We've got people who spend their entire lives working in comics who can't get stories, you know, greenlit and have things uh, thrown back at them by editors. But, uh, oh, you, you, you scripted one TV show? Or, oh, you wrote a book? Yeah, you you want to kill, kill some of our characters? You want to destroy some of our lore? Yeah, have at it. Have at it. Ugh, garbage. Um, anyway, <laughs> Damien wraps up with... Anyway, until Chris decides to pretend I don't exist, make my next last. Well, that will never, ever happen, Damien. So thank you so, so much for writing in. Next up, we got Evan talking about Excalibur number 18. He says, I'm surprised you didn't try to get hashtag close the gate trending when Emma suggested shutting down the other world gate. I thought about it. I, I hope I, you know, if they want to do an X-Men vote, that should be our X-Men vote, right? Then again, I mean... I mean, my voting record in X-Men elections is not the best. So for all I know, um, for all I know, I would just be damning us to uh, every issue being another world, which isn't, I guess it isn't really different from what we have now. It's funny, I was thinking about the, the you know, ec the current X-Men election here where we got Polaris added to the Volume 6 team. And over in the Facebook group, uh, Jesse had shared with us a cover for an upcoming issue of Marauders where Tempo and Banshee are on it. And I'm thinking, like, I, I don't know if it's just the cynic in me, um, but it's like, huh, you know, uh, they're here. They were in the, the running for the, uh, for the election, but uh, I don't know, maybe it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Maybe Marvel already knew who they wanted in the, uh, in the uh, Volume 6 team and just gave us the illusion 
that we were controlling things. Maybe, I, I don't know. I, I am a cynic, so that could just be uh, me projecting. Now, uh, Evan continues. Aside from the chuckle I got out of that, I did enjoy this issue. I didn't feel like I'd missed anything, although some more evidence of Betsy acting strange would have been welcome. I don't remember her and Rogue being close in anything I read, but her concern comes across as genuine. Otherwise, I like the team having a reason for doing what they're doing, as opposed to traipsing through Otherworld for reasons I can't understand. Now, you raise a good point there, and I think I've mentioned this a time or two during our Excalibur conversations here. They're, they want us to think that Rogue and Betsy are, like, super tight. And though they've been on, you know, the same team for many years now, I don't know that we've ever seen them, like, bond. Not to say that they didn't. I mean, this is a Teeny Howard book, and so we know a lot of the story takes place off-panel, so I guess we could just assume that that's the case, but... It does feel a little bit artificial. Despite the fact that Rogue's uh, concern did feel real, their entire relationship feels a little little forced and a little artificial. Evan continues, King Jamie the Weird's discovery of the missing clone body was funny. Are we, at assu- are we to assume Quanan from another canon, pronounced Kanan, has inhabited the spare Betsy? I don't know if you realize this, but it wouldn't be the first time those two swapped bodies. You know, I, that would really help us out if they would... Uh, if they would leave footnotes to that, they would tell us that every once in a while that Betsy and Quanan were either sharing bodies or swap bodies because, I mean, I feel like we never, ever, ever hear about that. <clears throat> but I but I digress. Uh, now, thank you so much for writing in, Evan. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, now, before we cut out of here, we do have a short fake-ass comics history segment here. Uh, now, last episode when we talked about Runaways, we skipped it because there just wasn't any... There wasn't any obscure character to uh, take a look at. It was just uh, the Runaways and Wolverine and Pixie, and I think we uh, we know them pretty well. So for today's F-A-C-H, we're going to take a look at Hell's Bells. Now, their first appearance was X-Factor number 80, July 1992 cover date, created by Peter David and Larry Stroman. And this is going to be an easy one. Now, the, Hell Bell- the Hell's Bells were a quintet of female terrorists assembled by Cyber. Yeah, that cyber, the one who first appeared in Marvel Comics Presents in late 1991, who uh, Walt and I have uh, spoken quite a bit about during our segment in From Claremont to Claremont. Now, the bells are Briquette, with the power of thermokinesis and superhuman strength, Flambe, who is basically Pyro, he's got Pyro's powers, ability to control flame but not actually manifest it, Tremolo, which I'm almost certainly pronouncing wrong, she could shoot energy blasts and create vibrational waves, Vague could turn invisible and also fly, and Shrew, who could transform. Now, their whole story kind of starts here because Shrew would get caught by authorities and threaten to testify like Ghost State's evidence against the rest of the Bells in exchange for immunity. Now, this led to the government-sponsored version of X-Factor to have to protect Shrew from her old running buddies and boss. The Bells and Cyber would strike and attempt to silence their former partner. Though, I mean, hmm... They're villains, right? I mean, that's clear. They're bad guys. So what does it really matter if Shrew spilled the beans on the fact that the bad guys are bad? Hmm, I don't know. Whatever the case, X-Factor would defeat them and uh, have them arrested. Shrew would even cause Cyber to fall into the path of a moving train, though he would survive. We wouldn't see nor hear anything from the Bells again until post-decimation, post-M-Day. Here, it was revealed that all the bells besides Burkett were depowered by the Scarlet Witch. 
though we haven't seen Shrew since 1992, so, I mean, who knows? She, she was not listed among the 198, so we can assume that uh, there's no powers there, or maybe she passed, I don't know. Now, vague tremolo and flambe would be cited as having been depowered in New Avengers number 18, which had a June 2006 cover date. Briquette would later join a support group started by Nightcrawler called Mindfulness for Mutant Appearances. Now, this was in Domino Annual number 1, November 2018 cover date. Now, this was a group for mutants who could not pass as normal humans. And here, Briquette is uh, depicted as being somewhat sympathetic. And that's it. That brings us to the present. So the Bells, in sum, if we were to take their individual appearances and their team appearances, they've appeared in less than 10 comics. So, easy peasy. But now we know more about the Hell's Bells than uh, we ever realized we didn't care to know. So there's that. But that is where we will leave it for today. If you'd like to write in and join the show, please feel free to do so. You could find me several different ways. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90sXmen, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Blog posts and show notes are at chrisoninfinitearths.com. You can talk to us on Facebook. Our little group is 90sXmen. And for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, please feel free to uh, share the show, spread the word. It would really, really mean a lot to me. But that is where we'll leave it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for sharing a little bit of your time with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.